I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity And woman, of course. Many of us are familiar with the unfortunate and very counterproductive reality of what's called the school-to-prison pipeline. Of course, that is defined as a process of criminalizing youth that is carried out by disciplinary policies and practices within schools that put students into contact with law enforcement. Does this happen equally among white girls and girls of color? Obviously not. The current process is a failure of vast proportions and is doing no one any good. Identifying the problem is an important and necessary first step, and in her new book, Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues, Education for the Liberation of Black and Brown Girls, author Monique W. Morris follows up her earlier book, Push Out, The Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools. Morris and I discussed that book on an earlier Keeping Democracy Alive. This current system, uh, Schools to Prison, serves to challenge the policies, practices, and cultural illiteracy that push so many students with great potential out of school and into unhealthy and often unsafe dead-end futures. Obviously, we can't just keep doing the same thing over and over and expect a different result. Morris's new book has been called A Path to Solutions, a masterpiece. Morris blends academic research with real life to offer a workable manifesto to move away from punishment, trauma, and discrimination toward safety, justice, and a genuine community in our schools. We can and must, she argues, move away from surveillance or the threat of arrest or removal from school to yield higher achieving more stable students who might otherwise be cast out to the margins without much hope. This book has been called A Radiant Manifesto, a guide to moving away from punishment, trauma, and discrimination towards safety, justice, and genuine community in our schools. Monique Morris, thanks so much for being with us again and keeping democracy alive. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Monique Morris is co-founder of the National Black Women's Justice Institute is the author of several books, including Push Out, Black Stats, and the new one, Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues, all from the New Press. Her work has been featured by NPR, The New York Times, MSNBC, Essence, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and Education Week, and others. Well, again, thanks so much for being with us. How did you come up with that title, Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues? What does it mean? I wonder if you could in answering that, talk about the power of blues songs. How does it work on the individual singing? In what ways are the blues healing? Yeah, thank you. I uh, really came to the title organically just in the process of exploring how uh, we might approach our girls differently, black and brown girls specifically, um, in our schools, but also in our communities. And 
as I was writing the book and thinking about how I wanted to structure it, um, I kept being called, frankly, <laughs> to the blues and thinking about not just the blues as a form of entertainment. It's one of the things that I write in the book is that for so many, the blues is simply a musical genre that um, you know people enjoy for entertainment value, but that beneath all of that is really, um, I think, a, a path to healing in the sense that it provides a foundation for truth-telling, and uh, the blues has always been uh, a a path for examining some of the most heinous, problematic, traumatic experiences in one's life and finding a way through it. Um, it's not about being stuck. It's not about uh, finding, um, you know, just a, a rhythm in the pain and staying there, but finding a path forward. And so I wanted to call upon that wisdom in the writing of this book and in thinking about another big complex issue, which is, you know, as you described in your introduction, what people call the school-to-prison pipeline that I call school-to-confinement pathways or the policies, practices, conditions, and the way we think about or the prevailing consciousness um, that really renders um, our children and adolescents vulnerable to future contact with the juvenile court or criminal legal system. So um, ultimately, the blues is about truth-telling, and it's about a rereading of whether one is sassy or disorderly, whether mm. one is... Um, you know, sort of fit to be in community, but really to explore how we structure new ways of being so that uh, our, all of our young people can experience their identities as scholars the way that we want them to. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, that's that's our hope for schools is to uh, connect with kids and uh, enable them to be the best they can be. And pff, schools to prison pipeline ain't exactly doing that it's uh no <laughs> i mean i've had conversations with girls around the country who tell me they want their schools to be a sanctuary but right now it feels like a prison mm. and we all know that the feeling of a sanctuary is very different than the feeling of uh, a prison boy, that's um, sure. and even if we've never experienced either one of those we should have some calling that tells us that what we experience as a sacred space or what we experience as a place for healing is going to have a very different feel than a place for punishment. Mm, that is so true. In what ways is this new book, uh, Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues, a follow-up to your last book, which we discussed, Push Out? How does it follow up yeah. to that? So in Push Out, I spent a lot of time talking about the issue, the problem, um, trying to find ways to deconstruct it, place it in a historical context, really think about um, the data that um, have been demonstrating this disparity. And uh, with Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues, I talk about how people have used Push Out as a way to explore not just a, uh, a singular issue, but to really think about transforming how they engage with our girls. But I also really spend the vast majority of the time in Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues, not deconstructing the problem, but exploring and, and uh, sharing examples of how people have done it differently. Nice. And what we might do um, as a society, as educators, as those who might be educational advocates, to think uh, differently about the possibility of what schools can be in the lives of black and brown girls. Ah, think differently. What a concept. We get locked into the old ways of doing things. They become familiar and you know, it's 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 hard to get out. Even though, you know, we see that the familiar pattern and process isn't necessarily working. It, it's hard right. to see a way out of it sometimes. And certainly, punishment has been relied on pretty much forever as a way to 
steer kids to better, more productive behavior. What is the role of punishment in schools now? What does research conclude about its actual effectiveness? Yeah. So, you know, what we know is that um, you know, what, I, what I write about is, is, that, you know, is how our schools have become increasingly locations for punishment. Um, what we know is that when punishment is conflated with accountability, what we get is a lot of harsh discipline without there really being a conversation about true accountability or the opportunity to repair relationships that may have been harmed in the process of there being this conflict or um, as the source of this conflict. Uh, in Singer Rhythm, Dance of Blues, I talk about, you know, the first track is the case for suspending exclusionary discipline and inviting us to think about how we've structured schools uh, and how we might restructure schools to be responsive to trauma, to explore some of the root causes beyond just uh, responding to a singular behavior. What we know, you know, from the work that I have been doing and others in this space is that when young people are uh, removed from school or taken out of uh, the opportunity for them to repair relationships and repair harm, that harm only gets worse. It only festers. Um, In my TED Talk, I talked about what we might do if we thought about, you know, all of our young people who are in trouble, instead of casting them aside and seeing them as disposable, what if we brought them in closer, right? What if we brought them into a space where we could work with them to explore what they truly need to be a part of our community? That that is where the healing begins, and that's where the learning can then begin, and our communities can grow. It's not a utopia, right? I think often when I talk about this concept of, really responding to young people in crisis differently, people say, well, you know, that works in a perfect world, but, um, and that's why I wrote Sing a Rhythm, Dance of Blues, because I wanted to demonstrate that this is happening right now in many communities, and it doesn't have to be a utopian society for us to challenge ourselves to set a new intention for our young people in their places of learning, to say, we are going to um, examine how we've been treating our girls and how we might restructure what we do to treat our girls differently. I start the book with uh, Stephanie Patton at the Columbus City Prep School for Girls, who is a principal that I met um, one day while I was you know, touring for Push Out and talking to communities. And as a principal, she stood up in the community meeting and she said, we are no longer going to punish our girls for having a bad attitude. And instantly she caught my attention because, you know, the fact that she would stand publicly and say we're no longer going to punish our girls for having a bad attitude is certainly worthy of anyone's attention. But what she did that, you know, that that really followed that um, and that caught my attention is she went about structuring a set of conversations and developing an infrastructure to support this claim that she would no longer do this. And, um, it took bravery, it took um, in, you know, a solid intention to shift what she was doing, but she also reallocated her resources to ensure that her faculty and staff were prepared, that her students were engaged, and she has seen tremendously positive outcomes as a result. And so I wanted to demonstrate that you can do this, we can do this, this is achievable if we set our intentions to do it. And what about that reallocating resources? I mean, I, I have seen over the last 40 years or so, uh, and I will show my uh, uh, prejudice here as a Democrat, that Republicans have consistently, for many decades, tried to defund public education, and, and the results have been uh, 
not surprising. Uh, and, and, you know, disciplining girls for having bad attitudes, geez, gosh, do you think that might reinforce a bad attitude? What, what about this uh, uh, reallocating resources? How is that being perceived? Is it, is it happening when you present that? Uh, do, do education systems uh, welcome that idea or is there resistance to it? I mean, is it going to take a lot more money? Yeah, the allocation of resources is really supposed to be aligned with one's priorities. And I think in many ways it has aligned with our priorities, which unfortunately in education have become increasingly punitive. Um, There is a lot of money funneled into responses to trauma and harm that are about policing and surveillance and not necessarily about the things that we know to be most effective in combating some of these issues and resolving the tensions and and conflicts that uh, we know young people will have in schools. Um, It is, I would say, you know, to be kind, um, very unfortunate that our society has seen certain young people as disposable right. and yeah. allocated their hmm. uh, our resources accordingly. Yes. Um, the challenge with this work um, in both Push Out and Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues is to get us to rethink how we have built out an infrastructure of punishment in schools, which has made people not feel safer, which has made many young people feel that they don't belong there, which has made, as I said before, many young people describe their schools as prisons, Um, to think about how we can structure schools to be the places that we know foster thriving learning. Um, When there are the schools that are the safest are not the schools that have police patrolling the hallways and armed teachers and guards. The schools that are the safest are the schools that have a community that believes in the promise of every child, that has a community where young people have an adult that they can go to when they're in a moment of crisis so that they have someone to help guide their decision-making when they feel conflict or they're upset. The schools that are safest are the spaces that have a full continuum of responses to uh, a problem that has occurred disciplinary-wise, mm-hmm. where there are restorative approaches, where there is meditation, sometimes mm-hmm. opportunities for young people to take a break, to regroup, to do mindfulness exercises so that they can return to community and understand what accountability is for actions and also for learning. That is something that I think we have to continue to uh, re-examine. And it's an old idea, and in some ways, um, it's always interesting to me that I have to talk about it as if it's a new idea, (laughs) given that so many of us attend schools or have attended schools that had just those things in place. What I am challenging is the idea that some children deserve that space in our minds and other children do not, Uh. or that there's this you know, stated differently, there's this perception that some children need discipline and policing, and then there's the other perception that some children don't need the discipline and policing, but rather the opportunity to explore who they are so that they don't make the same mistakes in the future when they occur. And so, you know, this to me is about uh, educational justice, it's about equity, um, and it's also about the ways in which we have funneled our resources into uh, structures of of dominance that are prioritizing punishment as opposed to healing. My invitation to our schools and as we move forward into, you know, our next 
decade is to think about schools as locations for healing so that they can become locations for learning rather than as locations for punishment. Wow, what a concept. I, 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 for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is author Monique W. Morris about her new book, Sing a Rhythm, Dance of Blues, Education for the Liberation of Black and Brown Girls. And you're talking about uh, uh, seeing some students as as disposable, as not deserving. I, I, I can't help but think that <laughs> there is a color difference in how kids are treated there that would you know that uh, you know if you were to look at uh, uh, the category if you will of not deserving you might see uh, a larger portion of girls of color and obviously yeah. that's that's you know not uh, coincidental and I do find that rather appalling but one thing I do wonder still about is uh you know resources again the familiar pattern is you know, if there were discipline problems, uh, behavior problems, yeah, just put more police in there. Does it, schools are, are consistently, terribly, unfortunately, in my opinion, you know, having to look at their budgets, cut, cut, cut. I was hoping, frankly, by now in the 21st century, it would be rather different that education would indeed be a high priority for our, uh, you know, resource allocation. What you're talking about, does it cost more money? Not always. So one thing I'll say is um, I'm the lead author on a project that the National Black Women's Justice Institute partnered with the Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality to do on school resource officers and girls of color. And we prepared a toolkit um, for school resource officers not to encourage there to be more school resource officers. In fact, what we're trying to work toward is a community, uh, a learning community that does not have police in schools. Um, but to the extent that they're there, we were very clear that they have, you know, typically received little to no training at all on how to engage with girls of color, that um, many of the officers that are in these learning spaces have preconceived notions about black girls oh, that can produce negative outcomes that we are seeing. Um, and so, you know, we are, you know, in conversation, it was a participatory project that we did, and in conversation with some of the school resource officers, they too understood that, they are not always equipped to handle some of the key issues that they are called to respond to, or it's just not really a part of their job where educators are asking them right. to come in and sort of, you know, pull young people apart at a school dance or, you know, respond to discipline issues, right. which even the National Association for School Resource Officers says they're not supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be there to uphold the law, not to engage in disciplinary issues. But we're allocating mm. our money to support an increasing number of them in our schools as if that is going to solve, you know, some of these issues or as if that is going to resolve some of the, you know, sort of normal adolescent and childhood behavioral patterns that, you know, we have always dealt with in schools. That, you know, is an, is an actual money question where, you know, we uh -huh. could be putting our money into counselors, we could be putting our money into uh, nurses, we could be putting our money into a host of other resources beyond that so that which is associated with law enforcement. But the vast majority of what I'm talking about also is free. And I spent a lot of time in Singer Rhythm, Dance of Blues, highlighting those things that are actually free. 
and that really have to do with how we set our intentions to engage our young people. When I started talking about this, I said that, you know, when I describe school to confinement pathways, I'm talking about the policies, the practices, the conditions, and the prevailing consciousness that inform how we are understanding our girls um, and how we respond to black and brown girls. And, uh, you know, with this work and, you know, with with the the, I would probably say the hardest thing for us to examine is the prevailing consciousness component. Oh, yeah. Policies are tangible, the practices are tangible, um, you know, the conditions can be tangible, but the prevailing consciousness is one that continues to sort of boggle people's minds when they start to think about how they can structure them, their responses differently or structure their learning spaces to be different. But what helps us in this conversation is... Um, the emergent research on adultification uh-huh. of black girls that can, you know, sort of frame what we might be doing currently and how that might shift in a way that doesn't necessarily require us to add more money to a situation or throw money at the, this, this problem, but to really spend some time in deep reflection and some deep rigorous work around our own biases and challenging that work. Adultification is yeah. about the way in which adults read the behaviors of young people as more adult-like than they actually are. Mm. And a study from the Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality found that black girls experience adultification when they're as young as age five, mm. and that that uh, experience peaks when they're between, of age, between the ages of 10 and 14, which means that adults are looking at very young black girls and seeing them as more adult-like, meaning they perceive them to need less protection, less comforting, less nurturing, that they're believed to know more about sex and other adult topics, that that then can lead to them having a lower amount of patience when a young person gets in trouble or a belief that they should be in greater control of their behaviors than they actually are uh, developmentally. And so, you know, these are the challenges that we have to um, really accept in order for us to explore what it is that we're thinking of our girls and whether we see the behavior of a girl as uh, a symptom of something either that is a part of her normal adolescent behavior or if we see her as just a bad at- a girl with a bad attitude and a sassy, disruptive temperament. Um, this is what, you know, in many cases you know, can lead us into a deeper understanding and examination of why we then see six-year-old girls, six-year-old black girls who are uh, arrested um, or, you know, placed in handcuffs for having tantrums in their classroom as opposed to those girls who have a tantrum and who are given a moment to take a deep breath and reconnect and then come back into the class. Uh, It's just, I can picture so much of what you're talking about there. That's just, it's, it's horrible. And it's so unnecessary i think this you know expecting adult behavior from from little kids and i gotta tell you i mean i i it's easy for me to say not being a teacher not being in the schools that i think sassiness as you say uh kind of can show character (laughs) you know if it can be steered and understood and not you know necessarily punished and and disciplined and kicked out of school that uh you know there's character there and maybe I would like to think that schools can, you know, take and shape characters and and see the potential in everybody and and make uh, the best use of it. It can be a good thing, not necessarily. absolutely can, and many of them are, right? And, you know, I think it's interesting because, you know, we go into Black History Month and Women's History Month and we talk about all these women who were powerful leaders and 
you know, instigators of, of social change, and we, we celebrate them for yes. doing many of the same things that our girls are trying to do in real time and getting punished <laughs> for. And so, That's you know, ridiculous. it's confusing for a lot of the girls that I've spoken with about what the expectations are for them, but it's also you know, really inconsistent, it's culturally inconsistent to expect for girls of color to be silent if they see something that they perceive to be unjust or, you know, for them to, you know, sort of be in a space where they're expected to, um, you know, uh, engage in a certain type of behavior uh, in order to be palatable to the learning community. I think we have to, if we're, if we're really ultimately going to commit to this idea of education as the tool for liberation that we have preached for, you know, generations. And if we're going to hold ourselves true to the promise of education in, uh, you know, this, this conversation we have about democracy, that we have to be honest about how it is that um, this conversation of equity informs access to the quality um, of one's learning experience. And when it's not there, when that equity isn't there, what that means for so many young people. Um, we have a documentary out um, called Push Out, the Criminalization of Black Girls in Schools, and while it carries the name of my first book, it is actually a film that is based on uh, Push Out and Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues, and that it also engages in some discussions about solutions um, and includes some of the narratives from the new book. And in that space, we also, you know, had an opportunity in the film to talk to Susan Burton, who is the author of Becoming Miss Burton. She's a powerful advocate in the Los Angeles community and nationally. Um, she's been recognized as a, you know, CNN hero for her work with formerly incarcerated women. And she says in the film that she knows that had educators been waiting for her when she stepped out of the prison gates, she wouldn't have had to cycle in and out of prison for as many years as she did, that her story as a person, as a woman who was coming into, uh, you know, a, a, a process of coping with her pain, in addition to her pain being criminalized or the coping mechanisms to her, bain, her pain being criminalized, um, her story really began with a push-out story. And for so many women who are surviving our structures of incarceration and in this conversation that we're having about criminalization in this nation, um, so many of those stories begin with a push-out story, and so many of those stories begin with a sexual violence story that can, you know, that if we, you know, spend enough time uh, exploring, you know, in, on the front end, we would spend far fewer resources trying to manage on the back end. Such an interesting concept, pain is criminalized. That's really interesting. It's something, you know, I wouldn't have thought of before, but... Uh, and and one of the things that uh, is is sort of a national thing, I think, is the ACE, the Adverse Childhood yes. Experience Questionnaire, uh, that yeah. looks into the stress factors that might impair a young person's ability to cope with adversity. Tell us some more about that. Pain is criminalized. And, yeah, the, the ACEs study, um, I think, for many, is um, a powerful tool to understand childhood trauma. It's a survey that was popularized by Dr. Nadine Burke Harris and uh, has been used in many medical spaces and a growing number of educational spaces to help us understand not just the prevalence of trauma in the lives of young people, but to really think about the impacts of those trauma physically, emotionally, and intellectually. Um, where young people, you know, the, the survey maps a series of 
of, um, you know, potential areas for disruption in a child's life. And, we, you know, we call it adverse childhood experiences, but really it's about the traumas that can, uh, you know, really be life-altering and disruptive in, in a host of different ways. Mm-hmm. We're talking about, um, you know, divorce, uh, substance use, incarceration. We're talking about sexual violence. We're talking about physical violence and exposure to some of those conditions. These are all things that too many of our young people are experiencing. But instead of saying, okay, these are the things that have happened to you, move on, or just simply ignoring the function that they may have on the body and the impact they may have on the body and the mind, um, the ACEs survey provides an opportunity for adults to better understand what a child is going through so that they can become what Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris calls ACEs buffers, right? The people mm. who can intervene and become part of the resiliency community for that young person with that young person. And so... In our work and in my discussion about trauma and singer rhythm dance of blues, um, I invite us to think about how we can structure classrooms that become ACEs buffers. How we mm. think about, you know, there's a buzzword now out around having trauma informed schools. And, um, you know, the National Black Women's Justice Institute partners with Georgetown Center on Poverty and Inequality to run a trauma informed schools learning network for girls of color. All of those are great resources, but ultimately our goal is not to just be aware of the trauma, right? Not just to say, oh, we've mapped this child's, uh, you know, disruptions, and now we see that they have an ACE score of maybe five and six, and, you know, now we move on, that in many ways it's irresponsible to, to you know, have these kinds of conversations about childhood trauma without having a deep commitment for healing. Mm. And so, you know, that's, again, one of the reasons why I invite schools to become locations for healing, because if we're mapping the trauma and we better understand the trauma, then we can structure out pedagogical practices, um, learning spaces that provide opportunities for young people to really um, confront and heal from some of this pain, rather than us seeing Mm. their actions that are byproducts of this pain as a reason for us to remove them from the classroom or remove them from the learning community. How do schools, school communities, teachers associations react to this sort of novel approach that you're talking about here, making schools into healing centers? Um, Overwhelmingly, the response is positive. I think that, you know, most educators that I have encountered, um, you know, go into this profession because they believe in the promise of children and they want to play a role in their lives that is constructive and, you know, to be the teacher that we all know Um, can transform a life. I think teaching is one of the most important professions we have in our society, though we don't treat it as as if it is, but Mm -hmm. we recognize it. um, I certainly recognize it as one of the most critical professions we have in our society. Um, And so the response is definitely positive because people want to be a part of the solution. Now, the challenge is is in supporting their capacity to actually implement some of the recommendations that um, I propose Uh, and moving the leadership um, at the policy level, many of the superintendents, the school board leaders, to understand that the emphasis in schools should really be about supporting learning and not about uh, punishment um, and, and, you know, sort of conflating this notion of punishment with accountability. So, you know, for the most part, educators um, come to me and say they want to be a part of this. They use the material very well. They think about strategies in their classrooms. They tag me on things on social media to show how they're um, uh, processing the material, and I love it all. 
Well, I think most teachers do. They're you know they're not in it for the money, obviously. But they they're, they're <laughs> right. uh, you know I agree. We should be much higher priority for education. It, it just it makes so much sense to invest there. But I suppose that's another uh, discussion. Now we've heard it said for many years that breakfasts are extremely important for school kids, uh, elementary, junior high, and high school kids. I believe that's one reason. Back in the late 60s, the Panthers initiated a breakfast program uh, for kids. What's hunger, actual hunger, got to do with poor impulse control, especially in girls? What do we know about that? Yeah. So, you know, I I appreciate you calling attention to the Black Panther Party's breakfast program because it did pave the way for much of how we understand, um, you know, what young people need to thrive and, and learn. Um, they need to not be hungry. <laughs> they need to have the nourishment that provides them with what they need to be physically present uh, in the classroom and in their learning spaces. It's also a basic human right, right, to to have access to food. And so, um, you know, when I write about hunger in Singer Rhythm, Dance of Blues, what I offer is that we know that for girls who are hungry and not just, you know, not have eaten that day, but who are experiencing a chronic hunger, a Mm. chronic food insecurity, there's a greater likelihood of them being involved in the juvenile court or criminal legal system, primarily because of their own, um, you know, sort of way of trying to access food, sometimes can be in violation of the law, and sometimes uh, you know, with girls, it increases their likelihood of being uh, or participating in underground economies that can um, lead them into spaces where they're exchanging sex for food. Mm. Um, it can also lead girls to a space where they are not able to function and pay attention in schools, which we know to be a, the case for all of our young people. If they're hungry, they're distracted. If they're experiencing hunger, their brains are not able to focus the way that we want them to in schools. And so many schools have responded to this challenge by having gardens on campus to use, you know, both the science experiments uh, as an opportunity to grow food that does not have chemicals and other uh, you know, sort of interrupters in them so that young people can also understand the value of real food, whole food, as opposed to processed foods that um, become so much of a staple in young diets these days. Um, But to really think about how we approach this, I offer as a volunteer opportunity as well, where um, people in community can partner with schools to think about how to express uh, real conversations about nutrition with our young people, um, especially for those young people who are in crisis and who have had um, you know, very limited access to whole foods. I remember having conversations for push out with girls who were locked in detention facilities um, where they would just say, you know, I have no idea about what I'm supposed to be eating. I don't know what food goes with what. I'm a foster kid. I've moved around. I've bounced around. I'm always in trouble. And no one's ever talked to me about education and no one's ever talked to me about food. Right. And so, you know, again, this is a return. It's an invitation for us to return to some of the basic issues that are lacking um, in our society and in the lives of young people in order for us to grapple with these bigger issues of, of uh, criminalization mm. and underperformance in schools. And as you were describing that and the importance of, of food and food security, I'm reminded of, you know, recent uh, stories on the news about some school departments 
punishing kids for not being able to afford their lunch. It's uh, outrageous. It's just outrageous. It's it's so unbelievable. Where are our priorities? You know, any kind of budget is is a way of measuring what uh, priorities are. Uh, it's I, actually mean. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's inconsistent with all of the science. It's inconsistent with our understanding of best practice and what facilitates healthy childhood development. It's inconsistent even with, you know, if you were to use a test of how we engage with our communities. We call ourselves a nation and we want to be in community with each other, but we can't even feed young people in schools. Oh, but there's plenty of money for, for missile systems. To punish them if they can't afford to supplement that, uh, it's just, I, I just, I can't, I can't accept it, and I refuse to accept it. And while I certainly can, you know, understand intellectually the, the fiscal argument that people might make, I refuse to accept it, and I refuse to understand it, because I think that it is just so inconsistent with everything that we know about what young people need to thrive, um, that we are, are leading with a fear and leading with fear. Uh, an, an element that is not conducive to, to really building out the kind of safe spaces we want. And these days, you know, it seems like there is uh, an example of, of cruelty, someone who grooves on cruelty, uh, the, the orange one, uh, President Trump. Uh, and, you know, when schools are practicing meanness and cruelty, what the heck kind of, you know, results do you expect from that? It just and, and the idea of, you know, we, we've all known schools as uh, typically kind of authoritarian, you know, and, and I wonder what it might look like. If it's not authoritarian, if, if you know, your uh, uh, principles and, and uh, programs were actually in play. I mean, you know, people expect schools to be authoritarian. What do you, what Some do you people expect them to be authoritarian. But I think, you know, for most people, they expect them to be places where young people can learn. Yeah. And if we know that young people learn best in a scenario where they are provided opportunities to embrace who they are, yes. where they are, <clears throat> excuse me, invited to have conversations about where there has been a disruption um, yeah. so that they can re-engage in the community, that, you know, that will shift what we want to see in our schools. It's one of the reasons why I profiled the African-American Female Excellence Program in the Oakland Unified School District in Singer Rhythm Dance of Blues, where I talk about a public school district where there is an effort led to support black girls. We call it the African-American Female Excellence Program that was named by the girls in this program, and where its leader was able to foster a different kind of learning space, where it's not authoritarian as much as it is about engaging with empathy. It's about understanding that when we do this work, we have to lead with a different set of principles and values. One of the things that um, Zinga Dugas said to me in describing the work of the of the African American Female Excellence, she said, "This work is about forgiveness, right? This is about how we teach our young people um, the skills they need to certainly, um, you know, understand how to solve complex equations and to interpret historical truths, but also to give them the skills to navigate each other." And when there is a conflict, how to resolve that and to lead by example. 
wow, that, that makes an awful lot of sense. And, you know, I've never, never understood how kicking kids out of school is, is a good idea. You say that school suspensions are inherently harmful. I, I, what are some alternatives to that? And what, what is the harm that's caused? And what might be some alternatives to kids, you know, behaving badly? And, you know, when they're kicked out of school, they're given quite a message, you know, that, that you're not something that, that we in the uh, school value. Yeah, you know, I I talk about, um, you know, the the problem with having even one suspension, right? The the idea that you are not worthy to be in community. Um, You know, there are some young people who need moments to correct behavior. I'm not saying that they don't. What I'm saying is that when we take young people out of school, we not only, um, you know, impact the instruction time, we also... Uh, you know, and and send them the message that they're not wanted, but we also render them vulnerable to participation in underground economies that can lead them into contact with the juvenile court or criminal legal system. I've talked to many girls about what they do when they're suspended, and, you know, most of that time is used um, not well. Some of the girls in Push Out talked about how they organize fights when they're on suspension. Other girls say they do nothing but sit around all day um, and, you know, sort of actively, you know, not participate in, in anything constructive. But the real issue here is that we know that, you know, when there is a disruption in a child's life and a child is, is truly being disruptive to the learning space and needs a moment to reset, that having conversations with young people about opportunities to reset is critical. Just saying get out is, is harmful, yeah. right? It's, it's ostracizing them and relegating them to a space where our society is struggling to recover from. The um, more effective alternatives are the restorative programming that provide opportunities for young people not only to repair the relationships with those that they might have been in conflict with, but also with themselves. Mm. So, you know, there are multiple modalities that are being used in schools right now around restorative practice, some of which involve... The circle that, you know, is a a crowd favorite, right, Um, where individuals are brought together in community to have a conversation with others that can support their capacity to have conversations to try to repair the harm, to identify the harm and try to understand what is needed for for that repair to occur. Um, But there are other opportunities that schools are using around, um, again, mindfulness and yoga, where people are using, or schools are using service initiatives as an opportunity to explore how young people can come back into community together um, and how they might um, really think about building out um, a set of conversations prior to and understandings prior to a conflict um, so that it's not, you know, meeting anyone by surprise when they're invited to have, you know, a more structured conversation about what accountability looks like. There are just so many ways that schools are being creative around teaching young people how to be in community with each other that do not involve their removal from the school. Some of that is around advocacy. Some of that is around understanding. But, you know, fundamentally at the core of all of this is an invitation to co-construct what one needs to feel whole with that young person as a part of that conversation so that when adults are the only ones having a conversation about what will bring about accountability, you have uh, far less buy-in with the young person (laughs) around how to maintain that in the long run than those schools that are saying, okay, let's work together with our student body to understand what they need in order to thrive and then, you know, structuring their programming accordingly. 
Empowering rather than disempowering. What a concept. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with uh, uh, Monique Morris about her new book, Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues, Education for the Liberation of Black and Brown Girls. And the structure of the family and the structure of the schools is often quite different. It used to be in the 20th century that father knew best, that there was a male head of household. Now, how real that was, I don't know. That's another question. But, of course, that's not the only traditional family structure. Many cultures, as we know, are much more inclusionary of other members of the family, such as grandparents. I've often thought, well, gosh, it makes sense to link up older people with young people. Both can really boost the other generation. In what ways can the grandmothers be uniquely helpful in providing stability in otherwise unstable situations? So I highlight in Sing a Rhythm Dance of Blues programs that have invited grandmothers or elders in yes. our community to be in schools. Um, you know, some one school that I, ta- I write about is uh, that uh, a group that affectionately called the elders who work in the schools, the community grandmothers, um, mostly to call attention to the role of the grandmother in most cultural traditions. Um, you know, I, yes. I sort of offhandedly say we all have respect for the grandmother. We, we yeah, all know her role exactly. and, and understand how precious she is in our space. But for those young people who are experiencing hunger in a different way, who are experiencing um, the absence of an elder in their life, having an elder to help teach them both, you know, some of the historical uh, and community, um, you know, wisdoms that can only be passed on by those who have lived it is important, but it's also really a way to structure an understanding about community that, um, you know, really supports the capacity of young people to grow with those elders in place and understanding and recognition that they are there just to guide and support them rather than to just be a force um you know, to be exploited or or treated as if they're no longer a part of our community. There was a school in Southern California that I visited that that did not have law enforcement uh, patrolling the halls um, and that instead had um, elders that escorted students to class, that sat in the class with those students, that helped to enforce some of the, the, um, you know, school dress code policies with the young people. And the young people responded favorably. They responded you know, in a way that we would expect them to when they have a respect for that elder who is working with them and seen as somebody who can facilitate love in the classroom. Um, there have been other schools in the South that I've visited that also have elder volunteer programs where some of the elders will work in the nursery with uh, parenting teams. Um, some of the elders, you know, are teaching young people how to, you know, care for the babies that they've brought into the world. And so these are all innovative strategies, but fundamentally, you know, my proposal is that we just bring in more grandmothers, more elders, more opportunities for our older folks to be in community with young people and to, you know, to share with them some of the wisdom that they have. Mm. I uh, recently had an opportunity to visit Kenya, um, a rural community in Kenya where the grandmothers come in to the classroom to tell stories to the little children on a regular basis. And it's a way that they connect them to community. I think the founder of the school that I was visiting said the grandmothers are the keepers of our stories, right? The grandmothers are the keepers of tradition in a way that we recognize but don't always acknowledge. 
And so to openly acknowledge that uh, as a function in our society, I think, is critical for young people, especially those who are grappling to feel the connection with an institution that may have historically been a part of the tapestry of harm in their community's life. <laughs> Bringing in elders and grandmothers to help uh, you know, with bridge that process can also facilitate the school as a location for healing in that context as well. Uh, I, I'm sure, and it just seems so odd that this culture has has not, you know, incorporated the the wisdom of the elders and brought them in, and not be you know uh, uh, imposed authority, but earned, you know, and and people get that, and, you know, grandmothers, people like grandmothers, and I'm sure they like to be there as well. Uh, uh, how can educators respond to the epidemic of sexual assault and other traumatic life experiences? that often affects girls of color. What what interventions have shown big promise? <laughs> big question. That could probably be its own show. But, um, you know, I think, you know, what's important for educators to realize is that when a young person has a relationship with you, um, you know, the, the critical function of a mandatory reporter is one that can't be overlooked. And that in so many spaces we see girls particularly, you know, black and brown girls whose bodies are being read as provocative and or whose behaviors are seen as sort of par for the course of, you know, growing up a girl of color in society and a reading of her sexuality that might, uh, you know, invite one to actually engage in a form of neglect when she is experiencing harm. It is important to respond to incidents of harm when you see them and when they are brought to you. Um, unfortunately, many educators, especially for those girls who have been surviving multiple forms of sexual violence in school, out of school, when they come to school, they tell stories of uh, adults not believing them, mm. or they tell stories sure. of adults looking the other way, even if they see the routine practice of them being assaulted in the hallways or being touched inappropriately in class. And some of it is because the teachers themselves have not received the kind of proper training and support to know how to respond um, beyond just a you know two minute uh, answer, but to really think about what it is that is their responsibility, how to effectively interrupt some of these cycles of violence, and how to lead conversations um, in the school community um, or invite others to have conversations in the school community that can facilitate um, a, an appropriate response when a young person is experiencing sexual violence. Um, you know the. Part of this is about our society's inability to address sexual violence. It's not just educators. It's not just an educator response, but mm-hmm. educators are part of a tapestry uh-huh. um, of, of adults, a village of, uh-huh. of adults who are responsible for working with young people. And so, um, you know, I think there are a number of resources that have been prepared from the National Black Women's Justice Institute, the uh, National Women's Law Center that can guide specific policy interruptions, but also support educator interventions as well. And you know, I've <laughs> talked about you know bringing in older people and just doing sort of old-fashioned things. I mean, I've long believed in a very old concept of apprenticing, apprenticeships, particularly you know when it comes to the trades. Is what you call transformative mentoring, kind of like that, bringing in the community for healing. A little bit different. Um, you know, the transformative healing uh, and transformative mentoring is really um, the work that emerged out of Oakland, California through the Mentoring Center, um, who is a partner in a program that I helped to establish 
uh, in the Bay Area called Emerge. The uh, program stands for Educating, Mentoring, Empowering, and Reaffirming Our Girls for Excellence. It's a program that works with, uh, it's an educational reentry program for girls who have um, experienced uh, push-out, um, have been expelled, and or have faced difficulty in their learning space and who have, um, you know, uh, have some history of contact with the juvenile court system um, in the Bay Area or beyond. And transformative mentoring is really about um, locating the, it's about shifting how we understand mentorship, but also shifting how we use this term and word empowerment so that we understand that no adult can empower a youth. No one can empower another human. What we can do is increase their capacity to be empowered, that our goal is not to instill something that isn't there in them, but to really draw out what capacity is in there and promise that is already in there so that this young person can have agency over her own healing and wellness and that in the recognition of that personal transformation then comes the um, opportunity to engage in community transformation that can support and sustain this kind of uh, work that is, you know, understood to be an ongoing investment in oneself so that uh, she can participate in her life the way that she chooses. Um, it is, you know, the, the idea of transformative mentoring is to take away this idea that a mentor is the one with the skills and the mentee uh, is the one uh, without the skills, uh -huh. right? And to really think about this as the mentee having the capacity to really grow and learn, but that the job of the mentor is to really work with the young person to co-construct who they are uh -huh. rather than to try to turn them into something that we want them to be without their own agency as a critical part of that. Fascinating concept. And we just have a, a few minutes left. I am a strong believer in dancing. You know, dancing is part of the community. It's universal. I believe somehow dancing is essential to living. In the mid-1990s, you taught West African dance to girls in a San Francisco public elementary school. Why was it so important to the girls that you volunteered that you didn't do it for pay but out of love? Tell us about that, please. Yeah, it was, you know, a moment in my own life of, um, you know, wanting to be, again, deeply connected. I was out of the classroom after having taught for some years and wanted to go back into the school system and uh, show up differently for young people. And uh, the girls just expressed that they liked that I was there because they knew I wanted to be there. And they knew that the idea that volunteers came in meant that they chose to be there with them uh -huh. as opposed to just doing it for the paycheck. Right. So many young people believe, and I think erroneously so, I think there are some, you know, some adults in schools that are just there for the paycheck, but I think many more are not there for the paycheck because it's not like oh, the paycheck yeah. is just so alluring, <laughs> right? Yeah, really. um, and unfortunately, there are too many adults who have told young people it doesn't matter what you do. I get paid regardless. Oh, right? they, they will say that to me verbatim, and I hear it around the country. Never say that to a young person. Oh I don't care so. you know, what kind of day you're having. Just try not to say that to a young person because <laughs> that's what they will remember. They will remember the feeling that gave them before they remember anything else that you may have talked them. And so it is important to you know, understand that with young people, as they're growing, as their brains are developing, as their bodies are shifting, they are also thinking about how they interact with individuals and how individuals want to interact with them. So I was there to teach them dance, and it gave them a chance to 
step outside of their bodies. It gave them a chance to connect with me. They gave them a chance to, you know, sort of talk through the things that might have been on their minds, and it gave them a chance to, uh, you know, celebrate if they had done something great that day or that week. And so, you know, in some ways I miss, you know, going into that space because the girls were special, and I love, it's always great to be a volunteer and walk into the room and the girls are excited to see you. (laughs) But it's... um, but, you know, it, it's it's one of those things that I think, you know, we still don't spend enough time talking about is how the community can be volunteers in schools rather than pointing the fingers and saying, this is what's wrong, this is what's wrong, I don't uh-huh. know what's going on with these schools these days. Be a part of the solution. Be a part of the community. Our schools need us. Oh, boy, they certainly do. And our future needs kids to, uh, you know, not just go to the schools to prison pipeline, but to be as much as they can possibly be. The book is called Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues, Education for the Liberation of Black and Brown Girls. Uh, great stuff. Let, I, I, I'm so hopeful for it. I'm hoping that uh, what you're talking about is being uh, adopted, that people are recognizing that uh, there are other ways of doing it, that how it's going now ain't the best. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I got a right to sing the blues, Billie Holiday. Choose, I've got a right. 